America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel and the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. You cannot criticize your political party. That's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the Lamb is always love. The way of the Lamb is always peace. The way of the Lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. I think one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. This Thursday, we'll remember the Last Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed, and then Friday, on Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then... Next Sunday, of course, we'll celebrate Easter Sunday. And our Easter Sunday service here at the well is both outdoors and online this year. And outdoors, we're meeting at Hancock Elementary School in Chandler, Arizona in the courtyard. Uh, it's, a, it's a grassy area. And uh, we'll practice physical distancing. We ask that you wear a mask. It's bring your own chair or bring your own blanket to put on the grass. Uh, it'll be an abbreviated, simple service. We'll sing a couple of songs together with a shortened sermon. The kids will be with us in the service. No egg hunt afterwards, but all the kids will receive a goodie bag with some, some Easter eggs in it. And so you can join us outdoors for that uh, Easter service next Sunday. Or if you don't feel safe doing that, the Easter service will be online as well, just like it is right now. So next Sunday, if you want to watch online, just watch just like you are right now. And if you want to join us outdoors at Hancock Elementary, you're more than welcome to do that at 10 a.m., next uh, Sunday, Easter Sunday. And then after Easter, uh, on April 11th, we'll begin a, a brand new sermon series entitled Reset, Life After the COVID Lockdown. Now, we wish we knew when the COVID lockdown would actually end. No one really knows that, but it seems like maybe we're nearing that in the next few months. And so what we're doing in this series is we're asking the question, what have you learned during the COVID lockdown that could make your life better after the lockdown ends. Think about all the things we've been challenged with over the past year. Uh, maybe you've been challenged to see your family and friends differently. Maybe you realize how much uh, those relationships are important to you. Maybe you felt loneliness, or maybe you've been challenged 
in your patience, when you want things to just reopen and return to normal, if that will ever happen, and, and you've been challenged to slow down and, and look at life differently, to maybe reevaluate priorities, the way you use your time, or think about all the division we faced and how we've been challenged in the way that we view people who disagree with us and who see the world differently than we do and vote differently than we do. And maybe we've been challenged in our, in our patience or our compassion, our empathy, our ability to love. So think about all the things that we've learned over the past year. And then in this series, we're asking, how could, how could those things make our lives better after the COVID lockdown ends? And to do that, we'll use a familiar set of character traits that the Apostle Paul lists in the New Testament book, uh, letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, called The Fruit of the Spirit. And so join us the week after Easter, April 11th, online only that week. We'll go back to online worship here for a while for that new series, Reset Life After the COVID Lockdown. So today, uh, we're excited to welcome uh, a special guest. And during Lent, we've been reading this book, Postcards from Babylon, uh, the Church in American Exile. Every week we've covered two chapters of the book in the sermons, and then the following Wednesday you had an opportunity to discuss that reading in an online connect group where they've had participants from all over the country. And so we've had, uh, I think, a, a challenging but amazing time of growth and insight during Lent reading this book. And today we're welcoming as our special guest the author of the book, Brian Zond. Uh, and so I had an opportunity to sit down with Brian a few days ago and record this interview. And I've gotten the opportunity to interview a lot of authors and, and guest speakers that we've had here. I want to say personally, this is one of my favorites. I found it moving. Uh, I found it challenging and thought provoking and also hopeful. And I hope the same is true for you. And so I'm going to read uh, a bio uh, for Brian, give him a proper introduction, and then we'll watch this video together, and then I'll come back at the end of the service and close us in prayer and give some final announcements. But on this Palm Sunday, we're excited to welcome special guest Brian Zond. He's the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife Perry founded the church in 1981. Brian is also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and Unconditional, The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness. And then, of course, also this book, Postcards from Babylon. So let's watch now uh, an interview with uh, our special guest, the author of Postcards from Babylon, Brian Zahn. Brian Zahn, welcome to The Well. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be with you. We've Palm Sunday, I guess it is, right? <laughs> That's right. Today's Palm Sunday, and we've been reading postcards from Babylon for Lent. Every <laughs> week, we've covered two chapters during the sermon, and then we have an online connect group that's had 20 participants from at least four different states discussing your book. Awesome. And we, uh, we appreciate you, and we appreciate postcards from Babylon. And, and um, so just wanted to uh, hear from the author himself today. And uh, thank you for, for joining us. And so as I read Postcards from Babylon, it seems like the book has probably been forming in your heart for a long time. I'm, I'm just, I'm guessing that. But so I have a two-part question to start off with uh, here today. First of all, when did you first begin to realize that 
you know, this religious right and even now nationalistic Christianity we see in the United States was not really countercultural the way that the way was originally. Yeah. And then the second part of that question is, was there a particular moment when you decided to, to write postcards from Babylon? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I am, I'm seated at my writing desk. This is where I've written all my books. It's also doubles as my Zooming desk these days, but this is yes. my writing desk. So it's, it's good to talk about my books at this location. Um, well, I mean, one of my stories is going through a profound theological shift in some ways beginning in 2000 uh, when I was 40 and, and having to kind of rethink some things. And then it kind of came to a crisis in 2004. I called it my water to wine journey, kind of moving away from paper thin, easy cheesy cotton candy Christianity into something more robust. Um, and that's the tell story I tell in my memoir, Water to Wine. And so part of what I have been rethinking for a long time is this assumed cozy alliance between Christian faith and American agenda. And so, I mean, Postcards from Babylon isn't the first time I've talked about this. It shows up in, in one sense, it shows up in all of my books. The other book that would be very pronounced would be A Farewell to Mars. But uh, Postcards of Babylon did have a particular moment of when I was to, um, that I knew I had to write this. I had gone on a, a uh, three-day uh, personal spiritual retreat to a nearby monastery, Conception Abbey. They have uh, 68 monks there, and I show up a couple of times a year and always tell them I'm the 69th monk. I, I, tell, I tell Brother Cyprian, the guest man, sir, I said, I'm a really good monk three days a year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, while I was there, uh, I was also uh, uh, Father Daniel, the prior there, was serving as my spiritual director, and we met every morning and talked, and he would give me some things to consider. And one day... He said, Brian, I know you like to walk, and they have, they have a walking trail around the monastery that's about, I think it's like two and a half miles to make one lap, He's, and he gave me some things to do, and he said, you know, go walk that. Well, I walked it twice, and it, this was, I think it was in March. I remember it was still kind of cold, and, and I was just completing that second time, and I was walking by this little lake they have there, and I was just thinking about the current crisis of fidelity that we see in such a large swath of the American church. And it was just right there at that moment that it, the thought came to me, I need to write some postcards from Babylon. And so that's, so, you know, there was a definite decision, a definite moment. And um, then I sat down at this desk and got to work on it. Um, I, you know, I mean, may, maybe, maybe the, uh, and I don't know how many people read this book or, or are familiar with it. I might want to say something about, you know, the title that Babylon serves throughout the scriptures as sort of a cryptic archetype for empire. Empires are rich, powerful nations that have a, they, they believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda, which puts them um, in competition with the sovereignty of God who's made the same promise to his only begotten son. 
It's Jesus who has a divine right to rule the nations. It's Jesus who has a manifest destiny to shape history according to his agenda. God loves nations. Don't get me wrong. God, he's, God's not an anarchist. He loves nations with their diversity and culture and language and peoples and all of that. But when nations become haughty and then begin to have imperial aspirations, that's when they get in trouble with God. And it's a theme, God resisting empire, that runs quite literally, without exaggeration, from Genesis to Revelation. The problem is, if you grow up in a church hosted by a superpower or empire, um, you are almost unknowingly taught how to screen that out, and you don't see those kind of critiques. Um, but of course, the Jewish people in the time of Daniel, after the destruction of Jerusalem and their forced deportation into this pagan land, had to learn how to, how to live as a people that simultaneously had to make their way. You know, they had to make a living. They, they wanted to try not to get killed living in a pagan empire, but also maintain their allegiance, their covenant loyalty to the living God. And so you see that played out a lot in Daniel. Then later, much later in scripture, Peter in his first epistle addresses new believers in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, and he calls them exiles. Now, they're not exiles like the Jews were who had been literally, physically transported a thousand miles away into a foreign culture. What had happened to these people, they had suddenly become exiles by their baptism. These are people that had lived in the Roman Empire all their life, but by virtue of their baptism, suddenly now they recognize that uh, they have to live as exiles. And then at the end of that letter, Peter gives us a little cryptic uh, greeting. He says, she who is in Babylon greets you. It's a reference to Rome, that Rome is now the new current Babylon. And uh, Peter's writing from Rome. And so in postcards from Babylon, I'm acknowledging that America is the latest recipient, latest heir of uh, that kind of imperial project, and that we as Christians need to learn how to live as exiles and understand America as not as some kind of biblical Israel, but as a kind of biblical Babylon. And so these, I, so I started writing my postcards. I don't know why I call it postcards. I could have called it letters, but postcards just seemed a little more poetic. I think it works. And yes, and, and the concept, Brian, I mean, could not be more timely. I mean, yeah. you, you wrote the book in 2019, or at least it was released in yeah, 2019. It was published in 2019. I think I wrote most of it in 20, maybe I, I can't remember, 17 or 18, because it's all, all blurred to me now. I think it came out, when did it? <laughs> I think it came out the very beginning of 2019 which probably means I was writing it most of it in 2017. And so as you were writing this book and it, realizing then that there are some people who want to be followers of Jesus in the United States who do, who do feel like we're exiles, it seems like an awful lot don't and have this enmeshed relationship with the empire. Did you ever imagine that just a couple of years later, you know, you would be seeing so many Christians um, either supporting or turning a blind eye to what we saw happen at the Capitol on January 6th? No. I mean, first of all, let me say, I have never had a book that made me more unhappy that it's so relevant. <laughs> yes. I, I really wish Postcards from Babylon was like a, 
irrelevant book. You know, why would anybody read it? We don't need that. Uh, I would be happy for that to be the case. And I also remember having a sense of urgency because I thought, okay, we're at the pinnacle of this crisis at this moment. I'm talking 2017. And I need to address it now. And if anything, it's more relevant now yes. than it was. That's right. Uh, which is, let's be honest, it's a little bit disheartening that that's the case, or it's certainly dis disconcerting yes. that yes. that's the case. Yes, and and so because it's Palm Sunday and focusing particularly on chapter six, there's always some dude on a horse, which is a great, if there were awards for the names of chapters, I'm sure you would be nominated for one this year. Um, in chapter six, you write movingly about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday on uh, the colt of a donkey peacefully. Yeah. Um, why do you believe so many American Christians have been seduced by the empire and, uh, and fail to see Jesus as this countercultural, nonviolent peacemaker? as we read about in, in chapter six, and of course, in the scripture on Palm Sunday. What do you think that is? Uh, that's, an, that's an enormous question. It's, let's see if I can get my arms around it, because there's a lot going on there. Uh, where to start? I think if, if the question is why are, first, first of all, okay, that's, you can tell this is not scripted. We're just making this up as we go. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I do want to say that this is not peculiar to the United States. What is happening to the church in America here in the 21st century, and it has roots that go back much further, um, is nothing unique throughout history. Churches hosted by the current reigning heavyweight champion of the world, the superpower of the empire, have always, at least from Constantine, had this problem. I mean, we've seen it play out in Byzantium, in Russia in England, in Spain, Germany had a very bad experience with it, in England, and now America's having, this is a common problem. And I think it's rooted largely in our inability to see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets reduced to not Lord. Lord means Jesus is, is the Lord, which which we hear as sort of a, either an archaic term or a religious term. Um, in its original context, Lord was an imperial title belonging to Caesar. And when, so if you say Jesus is Lord today, can uh, certainly in a, in a wider culture, it'll be greeted with sort of ho-hum indifference. Okay, whatever, you're, you're saying something religious. But in its original context, it sounded political, subversive, and dangerous. This is why the early Christians were not persecuted primarily for religious reasons. The Roman Empire was remarkably tolerant of religions. They had to be. Um, but they were not tolerant of any rival claim to the imperial purple, to lordship, to Caesar's sovereign dominion. And when Christians said, Jesus is Lord, by implication, they're saying Caesar is not. And that's why for the first 300 years, the church was uh, periodically subjected to persecution. And almost in all, all that time, whether or not they were being persecuted or not, they were held in suspicion. 
They seem like sort of a dangerous group. Uh, they were they were conspicuous in their absence at the various uh, festivities and festivals that would commemorate the gods who are the patrons of the empire. Christians wouldn't show up for those. They wouldn't participate. You know, they're not standing for the national anthem, as it were, and things like that. And uh, that was that's what happened for 300 years. And then you have the phenomenon of a quasi-Christian emperor in Constantine. Okay, let me let me throw in this caveat. The church made a mistake in thinking you really could have a Christian emperor, but it was probably an inevitable mistake. I'm not here to cast stones at what happened 17 centuries ago. I think it was an inevitable mistake, but it doesn't, we don't have to keep repeating for 17 centuries. But what happened when they thought, okay, well, maybe we can have a Christian empire, although even, even Constantine himself knew that that's, this was problematic, evidenced by the fact that he delayed his baptism until his deathbed, which was not the practice at all. That was never the practice. I think it's a tacit admission by Constantine that uh, you can't really follow Jesus and run an empire at the same time. Uh, but that became the project. And what happens to Jesus is Jesus gets reduced from Lord to Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. And his job That's is primarily to get us into heaven when we die. It's a great statement. <laughs> and so then we don't really see the, we, we, we hear the kingdom of heaven, Matthew's language, as something we will go to someday in the by and by. Um, rather than the kingdom that has invaded from heaven and is always a possibility right now and should be the reality for the baptized. Uh, if we don't see that, then we inevitably think, okay, well, God's purposes are going to be accomplished by whoever, uh, you know, sits in the White House or sits in Buckingham Palace or sits in where, you know, whatever, um, in Paris or Moscow or something like that. If we take a moment and go back, though, to Palm Sunday, because that's what today is. So Jesus, in his ministry, and this is, this is without exaggeration, the only thing Jesus ever talked about, only thing, was the kingdom of God. And the only thing Jesus ever did was in, to, in various ways, enact the kingdom of God, whether it's forgiving sinners, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, his, his radical hospitality table practice, all of this is enacting the kingdom of God. Um, he is the Messiah. Peter has confessed him. A growing group of people from Galilee are confessing he's the Messiah, okay, the Christ, but I mean, it's, you know, Christ is anglicized Christos from the Greek. Messiah is anglicized English, you know, from the Hebrew Mashiach. It literally means anointed one, but it really means the, the king, okay? And so they're confessing that Jesus is this promised, prophesied king that will bring the kingdom of God. But of course, you can't be a king and not go to the capital. You know, you've, you've got to get to the, you, you, you just can't stay out in the provinces forever saying, I'm the king. You got to go to the capital. And so as Jesus in the spring of maybe AD 30, we're not 100% sure about that, but about that. As he is journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem with 
disciples and others from Galilee. Yes, ostensibly they're going for the Passover, but this Passover is going to be something special because they believe that Jesus is going to become king at this Passover, at this festival, which means that Herod is going to be dethroned, that Herod is going to be overthrown. And of course, since Herod is only a puppet king, it means Pilate's going to, you know, it means that the revolution is about to begin. Um, now, Jesus constantly tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm not going to be accepted. I'm going to be rejected, betrayed. I'm going to be condemned by the chief priest, turned over to the Gentiles, beaten, flogged, crucified, and I'll be raised on the third day. That they never hear that. I mean, they hear it, they don't like it, so they push it away. The raised from the third day, I think they hear as just an idiom for the for someday. You know, as Hosea says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, just sort of as some vague nebulous future event. So, no, they they they're still thinking that in a conventional way, Jesus is going to overthrow the powers that be and set up a new regime, a new kingdom. So in, in one sense, this is a slow motion invasion, all right? And, and in fact, he's even warned, you know, uh, you better get out of here. You come claiming that you're the king and Herod's going to kill you. He says, well, you go tell that fox I perform cures today and tomorrow. Third day, I'll reach my goal. Um, finally, they arrive. They're, they're approaching now. They're, they're coming from the east. They're coming up from Jericho. They're cresting the Mount of Olives, and there the city lies before them. And Jesus halts the procession and says, I need a donkey. Now, this is, this is a deliberate fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah. Um, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the opposite. I mean, look, Pilate's in town too. Pilate is the Roman governor. He's the extension of Caesar's authority in Judea. Pilate does not live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's cold, and he doesn't like Jerusalem. He lives in the palace of Herod at Caesarea. It's warm. It's, it's luxurious. But during Passover, he has to come to Jerusalem to keep order. Because it's, imagine the United States occupied by a foreign power. And then imagine the tensions that would arise every 4th of July. Okay, so that's what this is like, because Passover is the celebration of Israel's liberation from bondage in Egypt. And so the Roman governor has to be present with his troops to maintain order. And so Pilate journeys from Caesarea, which means he's going to come from the west. And when Pilate came into the city, I promise you, he came astride some horse with, you know, his sword and all of that. This is the image that you see in every capital city around the world. That's why I say there's always some dude on a horse. I mean, just, just pay attention. Just look around. There's always some guy on a horse with a sword. And this is how, because it is a statement of military might. Jesus comes from the opposite direction. He's coming from the east, up from Jericho. And he also does something opposite. He intended, he doesn't, he doesn't ride a horse. 
he rides a donkey, not even a full-grown donkey. It's comical. You can see his feet dragging. You know? it's, it's, it's send in the tanks, and then you see people on tricycles. You know, it's, 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 it's in, in one sense, it's a mockery of the pretense of militarism, but it's also a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah that the king that really comes, who is the anointed Messiah, will be humble and lowly and peaceful. Main thing is peaceful. And so he comes in, and they're waving the palm branches, Hosanna, save now. Um, the Pharisees against him, you know, you, oh, and they're even saying things like, blessed is the king, you know. So, so this, is, this is dangerous stuff. And, and, and up to this point, by the way, Jesus has always discouraged people from publicly calling him the Messiah. He says, shh, don't tell anybody. Shh, don't tell anybody. Why? Well, because that's extremely dangerous. Jesus didn't want to get killed in his first week of ministry. But now's the first time when, when, when people began to proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, the Son of David. And Jesus accepts it. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. The Pharisees know how dangerous this is. And they say, you, you better tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I can't. No, no more. I've told them to be quiet up till now, but if I tell them to be quiet now, the stones will cry out because it's all coming to pass. And, and yes, and within five days he is, well, do we want to say killed? Yes, because he was, but it's also his coronation. So that, so that, we, I mean, we have to see that. This, that's how, this is how subversive this kingdom is, that Good Friday is when Jesus truly becomes king of the nations. His, his acclaim is by insult. His, um, his crown is made of thorns. His scepter is a reed. Uh, those that bow before him and call him king do so in mockery. His procession is to carry his cross through town. And his, the, the cross is the throne. That is his coronation. Now, what we as Christians must understand is that, in fact, is the true coronation of the world's true king. Jesus doesn't become king at his second coming. Jesus became king on Good Friday wearing a crown of thorns, and his throne was the cross. Thus indicating this is the way the kingdom always comes. Of course, we don't understand any of this until it's in the light of resurrection. But come on, we're living in the light of the resurrection and we need to understand that and perceive that. So I've, I've gone, I don't know, I, I hope I haven't taken us too far afield. <laughs> oh, no, Brian, I, you know, you said so much there that would be the cure for so many ills <laughs> that we're experiencing as a country right now. So first of all, you said, you know, this, this Christian nationalism, you know, that we're experiencing, mm -hmm. it is a failure to see Jesus as Lord. Yeah. And instead reduces him to the secretary of afterlife affairs. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, because I, that, boy, that's a true statement. And then it is a, it's a failure to even uh, worship him the way that those, those first followers of Jesus did on Palm Sunday. Yeah. And they said, Lord, save us. Uh, looking to an empire as a savior instead of to Jesus. And then uh, you, you beautifully 
painted a picture for us of, of his coronation. And so it sounds like what you're saying there is for us as followers of Jesus Christ who live in, in the world's superpower, um, the kingdom of God having power doesn't look like riding in on a war horse like Pilate, but it looks like laying ourselves out there yeah. knowing that uh, what's the great reversal, that true, true power is found in, in sacrifice and giving of yourself. Um, um, I think those of us who are, who are watching right now probably just need to kind of sit and stew in that for a second. Yeah, this is, this is the third temptation in Matthew's gospel that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Um, the third yes, temptation yes. is that Jesus is taken up onto a high mountain and shown the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Yes. And the temptation is, uh, with just a little bit of obeisance to the tempter, all of this will be given to Jesus. Now, I, the temptations were real temptations, but I don't think they were temptations in the form of, you know, Lucifer comes striding across the desert wearing a red suit and a pitchfork and a forked tail and, and says, hi, I'm the devil. I'm here to tempt you. Shall we begin? Uh, no, I think it, it, the temptations come the same way they came, come to us, cloaked as our own ideas and thoughts. And Jesus is on the precipice of launching his ministry. And his ministry is to inaugurate the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. Well, what's the most efficient way to do this? Perhaps it is to depose the powers that be. Get rid of Herod, get rid of Pilate, maybe march all the way to Rome, get rid of Tiberius and set up your own kingdom. This, this is right. This is Lord of the Rings stuff. This is one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, find them. And Jesus understands that to employ violence as the means of establishing the kingdom of God is, in fact, to bow to the devil. And that's why mm. Jesus says, be gone. It mm. is written, you shall serve the Lord only, worship the Lord only, and him only shall you serve. Jesus saw that the temptation to employ the means of the sword to establish the kingdom of God was in fact to bow down to the devil. Uh, and But that Jesus overcame that third temptation. The church constantly faces that third temptation. I wouldn't say, I'm gonna rephrase that. The church doesn't always face that. The church hosted by a apparently sympathetic empire always faces that temptation. I mean, if, if we are hosted by an empire that is not resistant to us, ostensibly, that is not persecuting us, well, then understand that we're, in a, we're at a dangerous place because we're always going to be tempted to have access to the Oval Office and to be close to power. And, and power is so intoxicating that we, we lose our way. This is Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas, you know. And, and the chief priests there at when they finally bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate is, first of all, Pilate is not, he didn't care about Jesus, but he doesn't like Caiaphas. And so he's going to make things hard for Caiaphas. And so Caiaphas is a sin, uh, Pilate is essentially mocking Caiaphas. So shall I crucify your king? You know, he's your king, isn't he? Shall I crucify your king? And then finally, 
Caiaphas takes off his mask and he says these stunning words. We have no king but Caesar, which is the ultimate betrayal of everything Moses and the Hebrew prophets stood for. But in that moment, Caiaphas is telling the truth. He says, look, I, I wear religious robes. I, do, I got a religious gig because it's how I maintain proximity to power. But I understand that what really matters is the power, not the religious facade with which I drape it. So I'm going to take my mask off for a second and say, Pilate, we're on the same page. We know that it's the sword that rules the world. I just want to be close to that power. Now I'm going to put my religious mask back on and go back to playing my game. But I want you to know I understand how it works. Well, I, I mean, I'm not here to... I'm not here to just speak against Caiaphas. That's over and done with. Our, in America, we are constantly faced with, are we gonna act like Caiaphas? Or, or, or are we going to, I mean, okay, so that also plays out in the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. See, people get thrown off from the movies. Barabbas was not a serial killer. He was not a maniacal murderer, just, you know. No, he was, a, he, was a, he was a political prisoner who had led an insurrection and was ready to overthrow by the means of violence the Roman occupation. Some people were killed, maybe Roman soldiers, more likely Jewish collaborators. And to many, not to the Sadducees and the temple elite and the chief Pharisees, the chief uh, priests, but to many of the common people, a Barabbas would be, uh, he would be a hero. He would be, a, he'd be a William Wallace. He'd be a Che Guevara. To be a little bit edgy here, he'd be a George Washington, willing to employ violence to launch the revolution. And um, Matthew, in one of the, one of the manuscripts, is not only Barabbas, which is Barabbas, son of the father, he's Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father. So you have, you have Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. They are competing visions for Messiah, for how the kingdom of God comes. Does it come through kind of a, a Christian Rambo, you know, through John Wayne means, or does it come by someone that rides the donkey, lays down the sword, goes to the cross, says, Father, forgive them, and trust the Father to bring resurrection? Um, in our zeal to have, you know, quote, a Christian in the White House who will employ violent means toward the preferred political ends that we desire is in fact to say, give us Barabbas. That's pretty edgy. I hope the well can handle this. Hang on, folks. Hang on. This is just Bible stuff. I'm getting this out of the Bible. <laughs> I, I, think, I think so. And, and Brian, folks watching right now are are realizing how we have seen the mask be taken off yeah. by so many religious leaders yeah. of prominence who have been seeking power, who saw an opportunity to, to follow a Barabbas. And, and our country is in, in the, the pains of that decision yeah. right now. Can I ask you, because of your reflection on the scripture and how this, this, this thirst for power works and how it's worked throughout history, where do you see Christian nationalism headed in the United States? Mm, Niles Bohr said that prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, 
I, I'm, I'm uneasy. I'm very nervous, and I, I'm going to be. I'm going to speak frankly. Yes. Because sure. we saw, you know, 70, 80 years ago, how diabolical something like this can become. Yes. In Germany. And let's remember, 80% of German evangelical Christians supported Hitler. Hmm. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And um, I mean, you know, many, or at least some Christian leaders in Nazi Germany saw that there were problems with Hitler, but their argument was, yeah, but at least he's not a communist. That was their argument. It was a very utilitarian, pragmatic, you know, communism would be, you know, the absolute worst. And so uh, in the name of not being a communist, we can follow this. Uh, have we averted that kind of tragedy in America? I don't know. I don't know. Um, now, I mean, I care about the fate of our nation. I have to live here. And mm -hmm. my children and my grandchildren. So yes. I care, but 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 primarily I'm a pastor, and I care so deeply about the church, and I'm so deeply grieved by the. I wanted to say I started to say squandering of our witness, but it's not squandering; it's the absolute defilement of our witness. And yet, here's where I do find hope: through it all, Jesus shines through. It's it's the most it's the most amazing thing. That, that even when we try to drag Jesus down into the mud, Jesus somehow actually stays above it. And atheists, look, atheists will look at the claims of religious nationalists and go, Jesus is not on board with you. They know that. <laughs> somehow, somehow so, so Jesus keeps shining through. Um, See, see, the problem with, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a critique here from both sides. The problem with, with the Christian left and Christian right is that Christian gets reduced to adjective duty in service to the all-important political noun. What really matters is leftism or rightism. And then Jesus is trotted out as a mascot, mascot to endorse one or the other. It was in that very context, that kind of context, that Karl Barth, you know, great Swiss theologian living and working in Germany during the rise of the Nazi party, said this, God cannot serve, God can only rule. Now, what he means by that in context, he doesn't mean that God cannot come humbly, as in fact he does in Christ, and serve, in, as in fact he does in Christ. What he means, the context is, God cannot serve some other agenda, because he has his own. God cannot serve someone else's political agenda because he has his own kingdom. God cannot be strong-armed into taking a back seat and just endorsing our own political movement. He has his own. And it is, and he's he is he has he has declared that Jesus Christ is the king to whom that we're to follow. And so um, I'm nervous. Uh, I'll speak frankly, I think the American white evangelical church probably does not recover from this. I, I, I think they don't. Uh, I think yeah. now they're, they're, it's such a big movement that it'll remain, it'll be 
extent for some time, but it'll begin a long, slow decline demographically, numerically, mm. and probably doesn't recover a credible witness. It will become more insular. Uh, it'll become more preaching to the choir, but the capacity for true evangelism is probably lost. Uh, where yes. do we hope? We find hope in that Jesus shines through. Yes. And so, so I, I for, for well, for one thing, I've never self-identified as an evangelical, although I probably fit in that general milieu. But I just, I was just originally a Jesus movement guy, and then kind of a charismatic, and now I don't know what I am. <laughs> I'm like a rock and roll Anglican. I don't know what I am. I don't have a title. I really don't have a title. That sounds pretty good. Rock and roll Anglican sounds pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I should start a movement. Rock and roll. A lot of good bands came from an Anglican background. <laughs> it's true. Well, so, so anyway, that's that's how I'm feeling about it. So, so on the one hand, I'm pessimistic about any kind of positive future for the white evangelical church in America. But that doesn't—that's not the whole of my faith. So it doesn't mean I'm walking around depressed all day long. Um, yes. I, I hope that at some point, a smaller more nimble, more robust, more counterculture, more subversive Christianity can emerge from the ashes or something. Yes, yes. Well, Brian, it's been uh, such a joy to read your book and, uh, and, and, it's, and to hear from you today, to hear from the author. We've been looking forward to this interview for, for weeks. And, uh, and I'll just I'll be honest with you, just in real time, as I've been listening to you, I've been moved uh, by... Um, by the clarity that that uh, with which you are speaking in in the most relevant way possible right now to to American Christians and so from all of us here at the well and whoever is watching this I want to say thank you uh, thank you for letting God speak to your heart and for and for writing and speaking uh, so beautifully and thank you for giving us hope that a different looking kind of church can emerge out of this time. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, 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 that, that warms my heart. It's my honor, my privilege to, to be with you, Ryan, and with the well. And I, I'm just, every author is just probably, if at least I am, I'm, I'm amazed that anybody reads my books. And when I, when they do <laughs> and I hear about it, I'm, it makes me very happy. And, um, and I can, you know, I can say this book came from a, a real sincere place just to be, of if a voice crying in wilderness, so be it. Yes. Um, yes. But I'm, I'm glad there are those that do have ears to hear. And that's heartening. Well, everybody, let's thank Brian Zond right now, wherever you are. And Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. And God bless you. And we look forward to hearing from you more in the future. Thank you. I want to thank Brian for being our special guest today. And thank you for joining us. Wasn't that great? Even during the interview, I, I, you know, I have to think of questions to ask to follow up you know, during the conversation, and I was so moved at times, I had a hard time, you know, concentrating on follow-up questions. I was just so um, moved by what Brian had to share and, and given hope, and also just given, I think, a new set of lenses to look at our country through and, and to see the situation that we've been in over the past few years and that we may be in for, for several more years. And I just appreciate Brian's willingness to write to, to speak out, uh, to share from the heart and be honest. And I know you do too. And I know that's why you've been joining us. So thank you uh, for being a part of this series and thanks for watching. 
uh, this interview with special guest Brian Zahn today. I want to close with some prayer, and so I'll, uh, I invite you to pray with me, and then we'll uh, give some closing announcements. Let's pray. God, thank you for Brian Zahn, for his courage to write postcards from Babylon and, and to speak out about what he sees happening in our country right now and how there are so many parallels throughout history, including the Roman Empire. When followers of Jesus acutely became aware of their status as exiles in the world. But then there were also so many more who found themselves enmeshed with the empire, with the superpower, and found themselves, without realizing it, gradually opposing the work of Jesus in this world. God, our prayer for anybody who watches this series and who watches this interview today, who has been perhaps seduced, by the empire is that they would be willing to listen to that still small voice of your spirit speaking to their hearts that this is not the way christian nationalism and this, this violence and militants and this this fusion of religion and politics this this toxic blend of of this distorted form of christianity and politics in the United States is not the way of Jesus Christ. The way of Jesus is countercultural to that. The way that Brian has written about so beautifully in postcards from Babylon and described today. And God, may they be open to changing their minds, which is the meaning of the word repentance in the New Testament, to see things differently, to change our minds. God, we all have to be willing to change our minds in order to grow, to repent, to see things differently. And so God, help us all as we continue now in this journey of figuring out what it looks like to follow the real Jesus in 21st century America. Help us, God, to be open, to, to be open to your spirit, to look around us, to be alert, and to be willing to think in new ways, to feel in new ways, and to be open to your spirit, and to be willing to change our minds. That's the only thing that can give us a hopeful future as a, as a church as people who want to follow Jesus in the, in the 21st century United States. God, thank you for this challenge. And as we look to the hope of Easter next Sunday, God, help us to see Jesus more clearly, most of all, and to recommit ourselves to following the real Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.